0: are an intense competition in not just AI, but other high technology areas. I think that if we view this primarily as a US-China competition, I think the US will fall behind. I think that if we view this as a contest between the US and its allies and China, then I think we're in a strong position of advantage. The U.S. has tremendous strengths and advantages if we work with our allies and partners. Um, and I think that if we do so, we're in a great position to uh, really double down on the U.S. technological advantage and help ensure that, um, that for several decades to come, we're in a much stronger political, economic, and military position to shape the world to our, to our interests and in those of our allies.
1: The Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I am phoning in from Monaco, uh, a sunny place for shady people. Uh, And uh, if the uh, Wi-Fi at the hotel fails, uh, uh, we'll try to recover. Uh, Meanwhile, as always, uh, the views expressed here do not reflect the opinions of the firm, its clients, uh, or any of the shady people. Alright, currently uh, sharing my hotel. Today I'm going to be interviewing uh, Paul Scharr from uh, the Center for New American Security and Greg Allen, who was formerly with CNES uh, and is now with DOD's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center about artificial intelligence, where we are, where the Chinese are, uh, what the prospects are for an arms race in artificial intelligence. But before we do that, uh, we've got a great news roundup uh, uh, with uh, uh, two two, count them, two technical uh, and policy experts, Dave Eitel, who's the CEO of Immunity, Inc., and the chief security technical officer at Sixterra. Formerly with NSA and Nick Weaver, uh, uh, beloved of our audience, um, a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and lecturer at UC Berkeley. And um, on top of that, Mika Yo Yang, who's a little more like me, more policy focused than uh, technically oriented. Formerly with uh, uh, the House of Representatives and now the Vice President for National Security and Chairperson of the Cyber Enforcement Initiative at Third Way. Uh, uh, welcome to you all. Uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, host of today's program. I'm uh, going to jump right in. And here's a story I wasn't sure was you know, more than um, a dog bites man, uh, but it's turning out to potentially be more serious than that. Uh, Nick, uh, the attorney general uh, has revived the warrant-proof encryption debate, or at least he's jumped into it with both feet in a very detailed and uh, long and fairly thoughtful, uh, uh, compared right. to past efforts by the Justice Department, uh, discussion of the going dark problem and some of the solutions. Uh, has the debate changed in any way as a result of this, uh, uh, this latest uh, essay on the part of the uh, uh, Justice FBI forces?
2: I don't think so. And the reason why is because it really doesn't actually add anything new. So the only real thing that I flagged as interesting was citing a couple of proposals, um, the GCHQ ghost proposal, as well as uh, Ray Ozzie's proposal. And And Matt Tate has
1: one too, I think, that he he mentioned. Yeah.
2: But both Tate and... And Ray Ozzie and Stefan Savage has one, is device at rest. So the how do you make it so that somebody can um, decrypt the phone when it's seized? Now, device at rest is actually doable because you can require physical access. Right. The GCHQ proposal is for data in motion, and it's basically going, hey, add a secret additional key. Now, there's two problems with This is
1: basically turn turn the conversation into a party line conversation without letting the parties know.
2: Yes, there's two problems. First of all, lacking key transparency is considered a security vulnerability in iMessage, and Signal and WhatsApp are designed so that this would not work. And the other thing is that uh, there's this great little observation from the EFF folks that you can actually graft on key transparency, uh, assuming you can break the app, and you can. So that everybody
1: who really wants to be sure that they aren't being wiretapped will break the app, add on something that alerts them when uh, their line is turned into a party line, and uh, uh, it will uh, uh, not enable law enforcement to do the taps they want to, but it will uh, create some vulnerabilities for people who are not really paranoid.
2: Worse is that... Because you graft on, you now detect that you were attempted to be wiretapped. And let's face it, that is the number one rule of a wiretap, is thou shalt not disclose to the target that they're being wiretapped.
1: So you think the GCHQ proposal, um, at a minimum, has some problems?
2: At a minimum has some problems, but in practice is a total nightmare. And one of the things that is a reluctant problem is that although I do believe you can do a good solution for device at rest, the the phone seizure problem, it's fundamentally a lot easier than the encryption in motion problem. Nobody in their right mind is going to endorse any legislation that would mandate the device at rest backdoors. because Congress would never get it right.
1: So I I, I think for those keeping score at home, uh, the FBI cares a lot about uh, device uh, 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 data at rest because they have all these leftover phones that they've seized when they uh, broke down people's doors. Um, But GCHQ and NSA and to some extent uh, uh, law enforcement care a lot about uh, data in motion because they're in the wiretap business. Uh, And so this this would explain why. GCHQ was so interested in finding a way to turn communications into party lines. Um, let me—I I was astonished, though, by. A, um, uh, a, a an op-ed that is getting no attention. One of the things that is significant about, say, Ray Ozzie's proposal is he says basically we can build on top of things that the the manufacturers and the devices and the uh, software are already doing. That is to say, they're already updating uh, a code, and all we have to do is have them provide special updates to particular phones, and that will give us access. Uh, What's striking is how the current drive for Silicon Valley correctness to be imposed on everybody who has uh, a communications device has led uh, Facebook, uh, apparently, to propose that they're going to put an entire set of things you can't say and links you can't provide into everybody's um, uh, Facebook mobile devices. And if necessary, if they think it's really something you shouldn't be saying, copies of what you said will be sent back to Facebook for moderation. Um, Of course, they have a a major political imperative to do that, including, of course, the political correctness of their workforce. But that totally breaks the the idea that you can't um, conduct wiretaps while maintaining security. A- am I wrong about
3: this? Yes. All right. <laughs> okay. I'm, well, I mean, first of all, you're misattributing, I think, a bit of their motivation in terms of <laughs> you know well, the political correctness. I'm not saying that the workforce is not you know, heavily tilted in one direction. And this really does drive into some of the issues, but in that that Barr himself sort of tried to highlight, which is that he's like, we haven't had an entire United States or global communication about what kind of security spaces we want to offer to people. So what you're seeing is that, corporations are saying our people want encryption and he's saying but they also want to be secure in the same way they were in the 1950s where we could listen to all the telephone calls in clear text and that's the deep down contention of these issues is that you know the people building the products do not agree with him and they are making the decision and he wants it to be made by a larger sort of opinion-based, shall we say. But, but clearly, Silicon Valley has, has bought into content
1: moderation in the biggest possible way. And you can say, okay, well, it's not really because they hate conservatives. It's because they want to make sure that uh, um, uh, people who uh, are, are recruiting for ISIS can't uh, engage in the, the use of this technology. But whatever you do, if you put content moderation into your system and you're trying to build that while at the same time providing end-to-end encryption you're you're going to break the end-to-end encryption as a practical matter
3: i think of course and it has the same issues that the ghost protocol does which is that if you want to do it securely you have to also guarantee that the user cannot modify their device and and inspect their programs running on their device which is not you know that level of trusted computation is not realistically what your Android phone offers you today. So and why so, doesn't
1: th- why doesn't this this in the end mean that if I'm right and the um, absolute determination to impose content moderation on their users, which has very good grounds in things like the pressure they're receiving from Europe and to some extent from yes. the United States, why isn't that? going to destroy the argument that uh, um, end-to-end encryption can't be broken also for law enforcement. You just show up with a court order that says, hey, that content moderation you're doing, make sure it, it, it looks for communications of this person to anybody and sends us a copy of that too.
3: And I think what you may see here is that Facebook was offering a solution that was unpalatable to both sides so that people would start talking about it and not try to force some other solution through. Because you're, you're right, there's no way the solution makes the users happy, and it certainly doesn't make governments happy. I think a lot of the pressure they were getting on this issue was from Germany, which has content moderation rules that we do not have here.
1: Uh, and, so this is a way of saying to the Germans, hey, we got a solution for you. How about no privacy and content moderation?
3: It, it may be something that was not destined for success, shall we say. <laughs> OK, so
1: it may it may just die. Uh, my, my prediction is that the uh, commitment of Silicon Valley to uh, censoring uh, things outside of Silicon Valley's Overton window is so strong that they will toss overboard their commitment to thwarting the FBI's uh, wiretap capabilities. But we will see. Mika. Election hacking is the other oh, is one of the other hot stories, uh, uh, and it was there was all kinds of news. You want to bring us up to date?
4: Yeah. So last week was election hacking week. Um, the crown jewel of that was the testimony of one Robert Mueller, who testified before the House Intelligence Committee and the House Judiciary Committees in one day. Um, while a lot of the conversation there was not focused on election security, he really perked up and got very passionate about. His concerns that the Russian election interference in 2016 was one of the most serious threats to our democracy that he had seen and said that those attacks were ongoing. Yeah. The-
1: so this 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 is the first rule of um, public disclosure of of issues like this. Never let the judiciary committee le- take the lead. Uh, uh, they're so divided, uh, uh, so ideological, and at the end, uh, um, so unable to find consensus that uh, everybody's turned off by the time you turn to topics of national security, where you might find some consensus.
4: Yeah, look, I'm a former HIPSY staffer, so I'm a little bit biased on these things. But I also think as a matter of setting a narrative for the American people, they can follow along, explaining what the stakes are in election security would have been a good place to start the conversation, because then you get into these other questions about why working with the Russians or covering up working with the Russians is problematic. But at first, you have to talk about the core thing that Americans should care about, which is that. American elections and deciding who are their leaders should be preserved for Americans and not foreign actors. So on the heels of that, we saw the Senate Intelligence Committee release their bipartisan report saying that they had taken a look at the election interference in 2016. Now, this is the the declassified version of a report they released before the 2018 elections, which was just a quick summary of this. But they go into great detail about what the states had experienced in the 2016 election and raise serious alarm bells about the lack of preparedness states have to deal with Russian elections. And they note, while they couldn't find any Examples of the Russians actually changing a particular vote, the Russians continue probing of the election systems and creating uncertainty around the security of the election systems was actually also in Russia's in- interest. They called for a number of actions to be taken, including the passage of bipartisan legislation to help the state secure the election systems. There's some other pieces of legislation about reporting attempts by foreign governments to help you. But, unfortunately, those attempts were stalled on the Senate floor by Mitch McConnell, who has not been interested in moving any of these election security bills forward since the 2016 election. Um, so uh,
1: there there are there is a debate about some of those election security bills because they impose federal mandates on the states for things that are actually pretty sensible, but uh, which have never been federally mandated. And the last federal mandate is what got us into this mess in the first place by saying whatever you do that you can't have chads hanging. Uh, and so everybody ran out and bought uh, vulnerable uh, uh, machines. Um, is there is is there hope for a bipartisan bill that maybe is less demanding of the states uh, or at least mand- less mandatory?
4: So one of the things I think is useful for listeners to understand is that because the states and localities administer elections, you have a patchwork of systems and actually – that diversity and um, unevenness of election administration is actually a, a a benefit to security because it means that you don't have a single point of failure. There are a certain number of limited number of election security or election machine manufacturers, but the numbers of machines out there are actually quite. Diverse. And so, because those are administered at the state level, you have a variety of different approaches. The mandates that people are talking about, you know, auditability, paper backups, are best practices and are designed to try and get some cohesiveness across state activity without imposing too much of a federal mandate here about how elections should be run. Um, Senator Warner, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, noted that he believed that. If the bills were allowed to proceed to the floor, they would actually get 70 votes. So there is a really big bipartisan consensus on this, but this is one of the challenges of the Senate. Mitch McConnell gets to decide by himself on what they vote on or not. It's not like the House where they have this process called the discharge petition, where a certain number of members can come together and overrule the leader to put something on the floor that they think is of importance to the nation. So it's a real challenge here. And by requiring this, this higher standard and McConnell not putting the bills on the floor, we're really stuck.
1: So, what uh, about the DNI's proposal for a, uh, a creation of an uh, election security intelligence uh, oversight position? Uh, yeah. Is that going to make any difference?
4: So, wait, all is not lost. The executive branch is trying to make some progress on election security to the extent that they can. Um, outgoing, now just announced. The weekend, DNI Dan Coates um, had named a new election official to head up all election related intelligence and had directed all the other intelligence agencies to designate a lead person. So, at least when it comes to understanding what the threat is, the intelligence agencies could come together on that. Unfortunately, as many have noted, it's not just about understanding the threat, but responding to the threat and helping states. You know, it's really hard for a state ele- or local election official on cybersecurity in these matters because. They're not necessarily the most sophisticated actors, technologically speaking, and now they are up against the GRU and the Russians. And so they really do need federal assistance when it comes to understanding and responding to the threat.
1: That's that's probably right. Uh, Plus, New Jersey has been utterly irresponsible and hasn't allocated any funding that to speak of to uh, uh, cure its seriously deficient machines. Um, And and I do.
4: We've seen similar challenges in Georgia, which actually uh, the federal there's a federal judge ruling today. I believe it's today on um, the inade of the election system in Georgia. Um, And this was one of the real questions in the most recent Georgia gubernatorial race was what was the election security going to be around what was going to be a highly contested election.
2: Can I just add one other thing? Remember, the point of an election in many ways is to convince the loser that he or she lost. I would personally be very worried in 2020 about attacks that are designed not necessarily to change votes, but attacks on the registration system designed to create the impression that things might got changed, especially if Trump looks like he's losing. Because we already have his statements that he'd respect the election if he won. Now imagine if deliberate meddling designed to inflamed the paranoia of a loser
1: i can't help saying that all the people who were trashing uh, trump for not saying absolutely i will for sure accept the result of the election were up in arms for two years trying to overturn the results of the 2016 uh, election so i this th- this is a real risk uh, so I, uh, but right now it's yeah. been the, the democrats who have caused the the most uh, doubt to be cast on elections
4: well uh, Stuart, I- to your point, though, and this is a point that Mike McFaul and I have been making as we've been talking about these things, it's actually in the president's interest to have these bills go forward and to have the elections be secure. Oh, absolutely. Because the extent that he is likely, right, he's got a pathway to winning in the battleground states and is a stronger position now than he was in 2016, the number of people who have viewed him as illegitimate will continue to do so if the election system is not viewed as secure. And so if he wants to be seen as the... Legitimate president of the United States, which he is desperate to do. He should go ahead and try and secure the system so that he could actually claim that he, if he wins, he is elected in a system that has been unrigged.
1: If you, will. I, I, I think that re- may require a uh, a level of sophistication about the process that we're not going to see out of the, the White House. Uh, all <laughs> right. Well, let me let's let's jump forward to the next couple of topics so we can finish on time. Um, NSA has established a cybersecurity directorate. Uh, Dave, uh, you used to work at the NSA. Is this just a a recreation of the old information assurance directorate uh, uh, after it was uh, um, reorganized away in a desperate effort to keep Congress from separating it from the rest of NSA?
3: I mean, they keep saying it's definitely, definitely not that, which makes you feel like it probably is. (laughs) So... I mean i don't i don't know necessarily because they're not saying any specifics about the mission but uh obviously neil ziering who's uh who's been a long time person there is is now the what you'd call the cto if you were outside the nsa but the technical director if you're inside and he's got a very long history of accomplishing great things so yeah, it's and also, Ann
1: Neuberger is not, is not chopped liver. She, she's one of the few people at NSA who can talk to the outside world without yep. getting in trouble.
3: Yeah, I don't, I don't know her personally, but uh, she has a good reputation. Obviously, a lot has been made over her background. She's an Orthodox Jew from Brooklyn, but it's probably irrelevant to the mission of the NSA. I think it will be very interesting to see what they go forward with because this is – it's sort of one of the very few U.S. government agencies that has that critical mass of technical talent – and by adding the IAD to the operations, they sort of reduce their ability to go out and influence the world in a sort of straightforward, honest way, uh, even though it was probably the right thing to do. So I think everyone's, you know, you saw Rubio come out and say, hey, I don't know why they're reorging again. They just reorged. Uh, but the reality is the mission is complex and changing, and they're trying to address it in a way that makes sense without uh, bleeding even more talent than they have been. So yeah and
1: it really was I I think it was highly likely that the NSA 21 reorg which was not popular but none are got rid of IAD because there was serious talk about splitting it out of NSA and and the agency didn't want that to happen now that that's not looking particularly like a risk they have to treat the information assurance mission as more serious than it was three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, So we can hope that this produces better connection to uh, industries that don't ordinarily interact with NSA. Um, And uh, they certainly seem to be picking people who are going to get respect from critical infrastructure uh, and and they may give DHS a run for their money in terms of uh, uh, dealing with the private sector.
3: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with that last bit. I think we've been turning DHS into the sort of very, extremely budget antivirus company, and it'd be good to have a better one, shall we say?
1: So I, I, I love this story. It turns out that uh, the Blue Keep uh, uh, vulnerability, uh, which uh, has been scaring the hell out of people, Microsoft has been telling people to uh, uh, patch their systems over and over again. Uh, um, It is a remote uh, vulnerability that can be exploited. Uh, People have been saying, oh, my God, it's going to be turned into a routine script kiddie attack. Uh, And the first steps uh, condemned by many uh, toward achieving that result were uh, the result of a release by Immunity, a company whose CEO is Dave Itell. So Dave, uh, tell us uh, why you did this and whether the critics are right or wrong.
3: Well, the critics are wrong in just so many different ways that we don't have time to list them all, but I can sort of get into a tiny amount of it, which is that you have to assume that when you release the patch, that you have also released all of the information necessary for an exploit writer to write a working and reliable exploit. And so any risk model that does not assume that is driving down a cliff in at, a, at an advanced velocity. And so some of the sort of policy decisions that get made around my and your favorite topic, the vulnerability equities process, have kind of assumed that like they're going to be able to somehow patch vulnerabilities without increasing any risk. Even though we know in practice that people do not patch their systems because for good reasons, not because they're bad at life, although some of them are, but but mostly because they have other mitigating defenses in place, which they believe protect them. And the only way you know whether or not those mitigating defenses work, which includes your human processes, is to test them with a working exploit, which is our customer base. So, you know, I I think it's well known that other people in the world have written this exploit before we happen to have our particular way. It's valuable to have a brand new exploit In pure Python that you can use to test all your systems because that's going to look differently from the private one that you may have been able to test the DoD against if you happen to be NSA or, uh, you know, the other five eyes countries with if you're GCHQ. So I think releasing this exploit is inevitable, first of all. It's going to be an overall good thing. You should know whether or not your defenses protect you. And the answer is probably not, by the way, because the whole thing goes over TLS. It's encrypted. It's in the kernel, which means that it's very difficult for things like CrowdStrike and other uh, defenses to look at because you're at the same level they are. But maybe they do detect it, right? So how do you know? And this is this is sort of the, you know, there's a value to information that goes beyond, hey, we're going to somehow pretend that that exploits don't happen which is not historically true
1: okay so this it, it, it is highly likely we will continue to see exploits of blue cape uh uh for a long time uh uh my guess is that even though uh, uh the uh uh the release of um, the um, compromises that uh, Microsoft had patched last time that were the result of uh, um, uh, the uh, disclosure of some of NSA's tools, uh, which were blamed on NSA endlessly, I'm guessing this won't be blamed on GCHQ's VEP process quite as aggressively.
3: Which is weird because it's the exact same thing. That's sort of what boggled my mind about everyone blaming NSA for like the Baltimore ransomware attacks, which weren't even caused by Eternal Blue. But deep down, if you release the patch, you also have the information to write the exploit. And if you don't understand that very key factor, then you're going to say a lot of nonsense in the news, which is realistically what we're no doubt going to see about this one as well.
1: So one of your critics was found guilty of uh, engaging in uh, violations of uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, uh, Marcus Hutchins, uh, I don't know if that's, um, if, if his crit- critique of your pen testing code was meant to be the first stage in the rehabilitation of his reputation or uh, what. Uh, um, uh, Mika, uh, uh, tell us a little bit more about Marcus Hutchins and uh, how his case played out.
4: Yeah, so Marcus Hutchins is a was well known now as a security researcher who is best known for stopping the WannaCry attacks, which he did by registering a domain that the attack called back to and then preventing its propagation, which would have been otherwise a quite deadly or not deadly but serious impact of a ransomware attack. But as he became more known for this role in stopping WannaCry, law enforcement started taking a closer look at him and realized that he had been in, involved in the um, selling of an exploit known as Kronos, which helped people steal banking information. So he was arrested um, in, I believe, Las Vegas coming out of uh, Black hat, and his case has been going on for some time now, and they just reached an agreement with him. He was, uh, where I believe he pled guilty, and he was sentenced to time served. Um, and the judge in that case recognized the turn that he had made in his life, going from a black hat to a white gray hat security researcher, and acknowledging the good that he had done. Um, this, I think, is a positive development. In the law enforcement relationship with the security researcher community, in recognizing the good that people can do and recognizing there is a space for redemption. Um, obviously, not all black hat hackers are going to be able to do that. Um, but well,
1: the, the, the good news for him was he had made the transition before he got arrested, uh, as correct. opposed to uh, announcing a deathbed conversion to uh, a white hat uh, hacking. Uh, Dave, uh, um, uh, do you agree that, that this? was about the right uh, uh, outcome or uh, Nick
3: do you want to weigh in on this? I kind of was was excited to see the fact that he wasn't actually put away. I think uh, this is something that you know are for whatever reason in this country hackers get extreme sentences often more than than rapists and murderers uh, due to the sentencing guidelines. It'd be <laughs> awesome to see I don't know if you you, you read Ophir Kears, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, uh, papers on this. But deep down, we're kind of out of sync with the world with how we treat hackers. And this probably should have been the expected solution and not, you know, an extraordinary circumstance.
2: Agreed. And I'd like to add that the reason why he was probably snatched up after DEF CON Is that um, the UK is notoriously hard to extradite from because you go Ma Aspergers and they don't extradite? And that's it,
1: okay, Asperger's. Well, you're you're off the hook.
3: (laughs) Well, fair enough because I mean we are such a outlier in terms of how badly we treat hackers. You know, I think probably just the stress of the trial was uh, punishment enough for something like this. Yeah.
1: Uh, that's right, and and facing you know potentially uh, years in prison. All right, I'm going to do uh, take us quickly through several stories, and for those listeners who have made it this far, we're going to tell you how to get $125 as your reward for listening to our opinions on cyber law. But first, uh, Facebook had a terrible week. It paid, it's going to pay $100 million for misleading investors about data misuse uh, risk. Uh, it has a $5 billion settlement that we're seeing more details on with the FTC. Uh, um, It's just ugly. And one of its co-founders is looking for ways to break it up. Uh, It's a miserable week for for Facebook. Uh, um, And DOJ has said, on top of everything, we're going to start investigating all of big tech for antitrust violations. Uh, uh, My favorite story, which I won't get to spend time on, is the car wash scandal in Brazil has generated its own hacking conspiracy as some uh, crook who had a Jones for one of his criminal investigators uh, uh, hacked the investigator, discovered that he was also investigating corruption in Brazil, and uh, released uh, a bunch of uh, uh, communications that cast doubt on the entire car wash uh, bribery investigation. Not that these people weren't Playing bribes, but maybe others were also uh, involved in getting ignored. So uh, I would have loved to cover that, but instead, here's your 125 bucks, Mika. How can how can our listeners get 125 dollars?
4: Yeah. So Equifax has reached a settlement over its data breach and. As a result of the settlement with the Federal Trade Commission, um, people who are affected have a choice of getting 10 years of free credit monitoring or a $125 check. Um, There is an eligibility lookup tool to figure out if you're one of the 144 million U.S. residents affected by the breach. And if so, then you get to file a claim. I'm assuming, Stuart, you'll put the link to that in the show notes.
1: Yes, we will. Um,
4: But, yeah, everyone should go and check and see if they can claim their $125. Yeah, you You can actually claim more than that. Yes because you can if
1: you if you actually spend any time uh, worrying about Equifax
2: and trying to get through Equifax to put on a credit freeze that took me about an hour to deal with oh, okay. so um yeah
1: and, and all you have to trust the Equifax with is the last six digits of your Social security number um, of course that's the that's the entire non geographical uh, element if I remember right the first three digits being where you were born or where you applied for uh, your your um, uh, card number but at uh, any event uh, users do not say we never did anything for you uh, also there's a robocall bill, a Robocall bill that's going to pass both houses it's already passed both houses houses uh, uh, and just has to be reconciled. And uh, we're going to have at least some effective approach to, uh, to robocalls. Uh, all right, that's our news roundup. Now let's take a moment to turn to Paul Shar and Greg Allen to talk about artificial intelligence. I'll see if I can bring the Equifax breach back into the discussion. All right. Uh, So Paul Shar, Greg Allen uh, have written uh, uh, quite a bit about uh, artificial intelligence. And what I'd like to try to uh, uh, get each of you to do is talk a little bit about uh, where U.S. policy on artificial intelligence uh, is today, especially military uses. Uh, um, where, and then I'll, I'll ask you to turn to China, uh, where China is, and uh, what the U.S. should be doing in response to the challenge of AI, particularly uh, uh, China's challenge.
5: So I would say in the Department of Defense, there is an awful lot of activity going on right now related to artificial intelligence. Uh, the, in, the recently uh, confirmed Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, Um, stated that this was his number one modernization priority for all of DOD technology portfolio. So it's getting an extraordinary amount of attention um, from the highest levels of DOD leadership and military service leadership, um, as well as from the White House uh, with the executive order earlier in the year. Um, A few major centers of gravity and activity are going on right now. Uh, First, uh, back in February 2019, um, the Department of Defense released the unclassified summary of the DOD AI strategy, um, with late, which laid out sort of the, the major elements of, of how they intend to pursue this technology. Um, and that basically now is falling to sort of two different organizations um, that are the, the basic centers of gravity for activity, the first of which is the organization that I am a member of. Uh, that's the new Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, uh, which falls under the Department of Defense Chief Information Officer. Uh, And then the second organization is uh, under the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, has uh, stood up a new group um, led by the uh, Technical Director for Machine Learning and Artificial Intelligence. And so the Joint AI Center is primarily focused on um, sort of more near-term applications of artificial intelligence, primarily thinking about what types of AI technologies are mature in the commercial sector um, that might be lightly adapted to use cases of interest to the Department of Defense uh, and the military. And then uh, research and engineering, uh, which includes organizations such as DARPA, um, Air Force Research Lab, and the other service uh, laboratories, is looking at more sort of long-term efforts uh, related to artificial intelligence, something that might be a bit more uh, research-intensive and involve technologies that are less mature. But in general, there's an awful lot of effort going on. Um, The budget request uh, for both of these organizations Um, is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, DARPA, which obviously falls under the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, um, is also now spending hundreds of millions of dollars per year on these efforts. So this is a big increase in activity that we were seeing uh, just one year ago and a much bigger increase over what we were seeing two years ago. Uh, So the Department of Defense in particular is moving out quickly on AI, and it has the attention of the, the most senior levels of leadership.
4: So let me,
1: let me ask you, uh, if I can, uh, uh, or Paul, to tell us what are the characteristics of artificial intelligence that make it both so compelling and give it coherence as a field of study. Uh, I mean, if, I, if you ask me what it is, it's that uh, the machines see a large uh, amount of data uh, and develop strategies for achieving goals um, based on that data uh, without having been told what their strategy should be. So that the, 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 it's a use of computer technology to actually respond to events in ways that uh, human beings might not have anticipated. Is that fair?
5: Well, I would say you know, artificial intelligence as a field of study um, within computer science uh, includes an awful lot. Um, what we are mostly talking about uh, when we're thinking about the uh, recent efforts in the Department of Defense um, is more recent uh, developments related to machine learning. Uh, so the primary distinguishing factor between machine learning and more traditional programming techniques is, as you indicated, uh, the relevance of data as part of the programming architecture. So if you think about uh, in 1997, uh, when Deep Blue, the IBM chess program, defeated Gary Kasparov Um, The source of the intelligence, quote unquote, of that system um, was just a long list of programming instructions uh, that basically programmers, you know, taking notes from chess experts um, had, you know, inputted, typed in by hand into the system. So um, the system was, you know, quote unquote, intelligent when it came to chess, um, but all of its intelligence was hand coded in by human programmers. Uh, Contrast that to where we are with machine learning today. The programming is actually done by the application of an algorithm uh, to a training data set, uh, which then you know, spews out a model. Um, and so, that model, the trained model, um, the intelligence is actually you know, based on the algorithm's application to that data. So, I'm, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but to a certain extent, the system is programming itself uh, based on its exposure to data. Um, so that's really the distinguishing factor between machine learning and more traditional uh, software programming techniques. Uh, the reason why that's interesting is where we are today in terms of how much computing capacity is available, in terms of um, the types of algorithms that are available and the amount of data that is available for many applications, is uh, you know suddenly applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning that used to be either impossible or incredibly difficult uh, are certain, are in some cases you know, suddenly very easy, or at least possible in a way that they did not used to be possible. And so what we're witnessing right now is a dramatic expansion in the scale of activities and the breadth of activities um, that are amenable uh, you know, to, to computer automation or computer augmentation. And that's what we're wrestling with, um, is the Department of Defense has gotten good at some stuff that used to be hard, but maybe in the future some of it won't be hard, or uh, some new opportunities are available that did not used to be there.
1: So some of the things that that artificial intelligence is used for commercially have obvious uh, application militarily and for intelligence purposes, facial recognition being uh, an obvious example. But for a lot of this, you need the data. And then the, the machine has to, has to take an action, and then the machine has to be told whether that action moved it closer or further from the goal that it had been programmed uh, to achieve. And in many cases for military applications, the goal is quite different from anything that the uh, commercial sector is going to be pursuing, or at least I hope.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth keeping in mind that, you know, most of what militaries do actually look a lot like what Walmart does. It's logistics, it's finance, it's moving people and things from one place to another. Now, what happens at the very end is what distinguishes the military from other types of activities. Um, But the vast majority of the military is not involved in combat operations. And so there are lots and lots of areas where uh, applications of AI in non-military spaces can be imported directly into military operations. Military runs their own healthcare, they run their own logistics, they run their own financial operations. Those are all things where AI tools are already starting to be used in those sectors, and they could also be used by militaries to make their operations more efficient, to save money, to move more effectively, and those are huge advantages for militaries. There are also, of course, combat-specific applications and those are going to be more challenging for militaries to figure those out because there won't be such direct analogies. Data might be much harder to come by. One of the, the really great things is that war is not a very common activity. Um, so militaries don't necessarily have a very good data set about what war looks like. Maybe they could do simulations, but even there, there might be divergences between the simulations and the real world. But I, there are still tremendous areas where Uses that are happening in other sectors can be directly applied to the military in non-combat applications and have tremendous value.
1: So uh, obviously there's been a lot of criticism, uh, uh, not least from the president, uh, from Peter Thiel, uh, uh, from Richard Clark of Google for basically blowing off um, artificial intelligence uh, research with a uh, a DOD application, and at the same time engaging with uh, um, uh, professors in China, whose connection to the military is a little hard to know, uh, and the suggestion that uh, Google's providing more help to the Chinese than to the United States has been has been made. To, uh, I'm not going to ask uh, – um, I'll ask Paul uh, to express <laughs> a view on that. How's that?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I think um, uh, there were a series of actions here last year that Google took that, that kind of in sequence all added up to a perfect storm for its relationship with Washington. One was the cancellation of Google's participation in Project Maven. Or to be more specific, Google completed the contract and decided not to renew the contract. Although behind the scenes, Google worked to to ensure that 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 work was handed off to another company. At the same time, it came out in press reports that Google had been increasing its footprint in China. Now, Google has, in fairness, had a very small footprint, actually, in China for a U.S. tech company. Um, Several years ago, Google decided not to engage in China precisely because it didn't want to be party to the Chinese government censorship. Chinese government said, look, if you're going to be here, we can't have Chinese citizens accessing real information. They might discover some of the abuses that the Communist Party is undertaking. And so uh, you have to have a censored search engine. Google had said no. And they've not really had a major footprint there. So Google started to increase it. And then there were leagues that Google was working on this project Dragonfly, a censored search engine for China. That's since been shut down, but all of this came together to really rile people in Washington. People saying, what are you doing? Now, the reality is Google, again, is not hugely involved in China, um, but sort of the direction there last year of walking away from the military, trying to increase operations in China, really uh, upset a lot of people here in town. Um, and Google, I think, has is, is really struggled to try to, to come back from that since then.
1: How have they tried to come back? Are they actually changing policy or are they still in thrall to their lefty workforce?
0: Wow, that's, <laughs> that's probably an intense way to describe it. Um, you know, Google has started to, um, I think, trying to find effort. My, my sense is that they're trying to find opportunities to move forward with the Pentagon and maybe projects that are less contentious um in some ways you know project maven was sort of perfectly aligned to create some of this controversy in that it was about drones it wasn't about drone strikes but when you say the word drone that's what people think of and so it's you know it's a bit of a trigger word for for folks um and also, Project Maverick was wrapped in secrecy. So whenever you're doing something in secret, people assume you're doing something bad. And I think that was a huge mistake on the part of Google to keep this secret from its workforce. They should have been up front. They should have said, look, here's what we're doing. This is why we think it's a good idea, and it's defensible. If you do something you think is defensible, then defend it and be and be open about it. So I do think that there's a path ahead, but it, it may take some time to get there.
1: So so Paul, you 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 wrote a, a- op-ed for The Hill a while back, saying that uh, what Congress ought to be doing is increasing funding for AI, improving STEM education, allowing more high-skilled immigration, and passing regulation of AI as a way of um, creating a viable AI industry that would support what DOD is doing. How do you think Congress is doing in meeting your goals?
0: Well, I think there's a lot of energy on the Hill. I see a lot of um, draft legislation and proposals that come out from members um, on, on all of these topics on R&D, certainly on regulation. I think immigration is a particularly fraught topic um, in today's political climate. And it's hard to talk about this particular issue, which is high-skilled immigration, it's things like H-1B visas to bring in high-skilled um, people from countries like um, India or, or China or elsewhere to come and work here in the United States. That's hard when there's you know so much energy on both the left and the right about immigration coming across the southern border. And that's such a polarizing issue that it's hard to have this particular topic, even though I think that there is real bipartisan agreement um, that we should be drawing in high-skilled immigrants from around the world.
1: Well, what about from China? Because we've certainly seen Chinese immigrants who've been in the United States 10, 15 years, deeply embedded in U.S. high-tech industry, getting uh, uh, wooed away by the prospect of having their own labs, their own companies, uh, uh, a lot of government funding to do things that uh, they might not be able to do in the U.S. So uh, uh, attracting folks from China to work in our industry has sort of long-term potential risks.
0: Yeah, so, so two things here are true, and they're a little bit contradictory, but sometimes it's hard in the media narrative about these stories to keep both in mind. One is that the United States benefits disproportionately from these talent flows of AI researchers from China. When you look at the statistics, it's quite clear that some of the top AI researchers from China will come to the United States, get degrees here, work here, and they stay here. And this is tremendously beneficial to the United States. Um, this is, you know, first and foremost, a, a, a competition for talent. Um, and we don't want to lose a hold of that. At the same time, there is a lot of intellectual property theft, academic espionage that goes on. It's done by a, you know, a, a slim minority of, of researchers, but it is a real thing. You know, the, the FBI is not making this up. This is a real issue. Uh, the FBI directors testified about this as a major concern coming from China. And we need to find more effective ways to uh, address this problem without turning off uh, these academic exchanges overall. So you know, where are the places where you'd like to do that? Well, first and foremost, we probably need better vetting of people who are getting visas to come study in the United States. Um, and I think that there are things that we could do, either the executive branch alone or with authorization from Congress, to improve vetting. Um, right now, that's a big gap. And that people are showing up at universities, and really no one's taken necessarily a real hard look at whether there are red flags in their application. Um, so, literally, right. And and secondly, you know, we've got to um, we've got to increase cooperation between the FBI and universities, and increased investigative tools here and knowledge for the FBI. And there have been, in fairness, some some big missteps in the past. Um, where the FBI has uh, at least, you know, botched some cases in pretty big public ways, that have, have I think, um, you know, poisoned a bit the relationship between the FBI and universities. And so the FBI itself has got some some work to do here to recover.
1: Oh, I think colleges have some, or universities have some work to do too, because uh, as lobbyists, as a lobbying entity, uh, a big education has essentially said anything that interferes with our profitable uh, importation of uh, high paying students is un American and bad for the country. Uh, uh, So their pursuit of revenue above all, is part of the problem uh, in the relationship with the FBI. Well, but let me ask you this other question. You said there ought to be sensible regulation of AI. I got to say that sounds to me a lot like the European Union's notion that they can regulate their way to high tech uh, um, uh, industry uh, uh, success. And it's never worked for them. What is the regulation that we really need to be doing in the AI area?
0: Well, so, you know, there's a bit of a, a mythos that we sort of bought into in the United States that technology should be unregulated. I'm not sure where this idea came from, to be perfectly honest with you, because we regulate all sorts of technologies in the United States today. We regulate automobiles and airlines and food and drug, we regulate tape recorders in many states. There are many states. Oh, and in which we're gonna,
1: we're regulating social media with a vengeance now, for sure. Uh, uh, so I don't think there's anybody left who says, "Oh, yeah, you can't regulate tech." Uh, but the question is, what are you regulating
0: for? Well, I don't. I don't think it's practical to say that you're going to regulate sort of AI as a whole. It's it's too broad of an area. That'd be like saying we're going to regulate, you know, chemistry. We're talking about applications of AI in specific areas. So huge debates around facial recognition, for example, as one area that raises um, obviously concerns about privacy. You've had a number of cities passing regulations um, banning certain uses in that in that city. So that's a place where I think there are um, robust and important discussions underway. You know, what's the right balance between privacy and security? I don't know. It's not for me to decide. But I think My point is that we need to find constructive ways as a society to find those balances in these different areas. And that is part of a process of moving forward in a healthy way with technology. So let's let's compare this to, say, the commercial airliner industry, heavily regulated and for the good of the industry. If it wasn't regulated and planes were dropping out of the sky, that would not be good for air travel. People wouldn't want to get on planes. And so that's people a place wouldn't where- buy those
1: planes. Although uh, if, if you were building fighter jets, you might not regulate the fighter jet industry in quite the same way if you thought you could get a major improvement in fighter jet technology by doing the regulation after the fact, you'd probably do that. And that raises the question. We are in a, um, a race with China and maybe others uh, for military uses of artificial intelligence. And I'm guessing that China doesn't think that regulating their AI industry is the path to success.
0: You know, um, I was I was actually just in China a few weeks ago, um, speaking with Chinese counterparts there, um, including from the, the government, the military. And I think there's a widespread understanding of people that look at this problem that um, you're not going to stop AI technology in its tracks. However, I was struck by the extent to which those in China do appreciate a lot of the concerns surrounding AI, and in particular, machine learning technologies, some of the concerns surrounding their lack of transparency, explainability, predictability, all of the same concerns that we hear here in the U.S. or in Europe. Um, And in the military domain, you know, the real issue here is about control. It's about trust and control. And militaries don't want weapons that they can't control. They might do something weird out there in the real world, that's a real problem for some of these uh, AI systems. They're just very complex and they're subject to sometimes surprising behaviors. And I think that actually that's a, that's a problem that people appreciate in both the US and China. How do you move forward in a way that, that makes sure that military systems operate in a way that's trustworthy and predictable is a real challenge. Um, but I do think that people there actually uh, appreciate that, that concern.
5: I would actually take a issue with what you're saying about how we're not going to regulate our way uh, to higher performance. Um, in the DOD, you know, it's, it's not always called regulation, um, but there are an awful lot of restrictions placed on either the development of a system or the use of a system um, that are very much targeted at overall performance and safety. Um, if you think about what it takes to land a plane on an aircraft carrier, the manuals and the rules that you have to follow and the procedures that you have to follow to do that are very much, uh, you know, very strict, uh, very burdensome, um, but ultimately they are, you know, recognizing that we are building, you know, assets worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, uh, and thinking about how we can actually develop an organization with, you know, training and procedures um, to operate those things effectively. The the point that I want to oh, make I- here is that. The Department of Defense is already, you know, extremely focused on uh, testing, evaluation, verification and validation for just about every technology that it puts into the overall portfolio. And I think that mindset is very much going to be brought uh, towards AI systems in general. I I think um, there's a little bit of concern in in the public that I've detected uh, that the Department of Defense is so gung ho about AI that we're just going to throw safety to the window. Um, And I think it's the exact opposite. I think um, the Department of Defense is is an organization where a lot of its uh, accumulated competence over the past century is thinking about how to field complex technologies, put them in the hands of, in many cases, you know, 19-year-old men and women, and to execute operations with these systems at an extraordinarily high service and performance record. And I think that's the exact same culture um, that we are going to bring to every technology system using artificial intelligence that we'll put in the field. Fair,
1: fair enough. I, I, I can see that wanting to have controllability, predictability, uh, 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 a, a confidence that the uh, uh, machine learning is pursuing a goal that you actually want it to pursue, pursue up to the point where you want it to stop, uh, those are all hard issues and trying to figure out what the um, uh, artificial intelligence is actually doing, whether it's cheating its way to success or uh, doing what you had hoped. Uh, All those things are topics that have to be part of development of AI. Let me ask this. Yes. So let me ask about the competition. Uh, you, You said at the beginning Lots and lots of data is central to uh, providing the tools for doing uh, uh, machine learning. Um, To what extent uh, should we think that perhaps the Equifax breach, the, uh, 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 the the various breaches of um, uh, Blue Cross, Blue Shield and Anthem, uh, uh, the OPM breach, are the Chinese uh, military collecting the kind of mass data that it needs to uh, run artificial intelligence against uh, uh, the U.S. citizenry?
5: Well, I I would point out that the the data sets that you mentioned just now, you actually don't need artificial intelligence in order for acquisition of those data sets to be quite useful to your intelligence services. Uh, I will say it it is often claimed uh, that China has a massive advantage when it comes to data and artificial intelligence. Uh, What I want to point out is that data is very much application-specific in artificial intelligence. Um, If your goal is to develop an, an autonomous car, a driverless car, Access to, you know, uh, 1 billion consumer financial records is just not useful um, in that regard in developing that AI system. What you really need is data related to the uh, operation of a vehicle um, and the sensors that, you know, might guide that vehicle. So uh, China has an extraordinary amount of uh, you know very useful data uh, that really helps the development of its AI ecosystem both on a research perspective and also you know an entrepreneurial business perspective A lot of that data is related to sort of consumer internet habits um, but also consumer financial activity and mobile payments data um, these are these are actually really important um, and they do offer um, a lot of opportunities for entrepreneurial businesses and commercial businesses in China thinking about starting you know AI projects but in general they they're just not related uh, directly um, to military operations. It's more of the back office stuff that Paul was talking about earlier, where there's sort of an, an obvious advantage.
1: All right. So we're, we're coming to the end of uh, the, the time we set aside. Uh, but let me ask, uh, I'll start by asking Paul, uh, we, we are in some kind of competition with China over AI. Uh, will we win and how will we know?
0: That's a great question. Um, I do think that we are in intense competition in not just AI, but other high technology areas. When you look at uh, trends in R&D spending, for example, China is on track to surpass the United States in R&D spending over the next decade or so. I think that if we view this primarily as a U.S.-China competition, I think the U.S. will fall behind. I think that if we view this as a contest between the U.S. and its allies, and China, then I think we're in a strong position of advantage. When we think about talent, it's going to be hard to compete against you know, a country of over a billion people, just limited to the population of the U.S. alone. If we're going to draw on talent from the whole world, then we're in a great place because uh, it's much much better to come and live and work here in the United States than than immigrate to China and try to work there or start up a company there. If we think about R&D spending or the norms for how these technologies are used, on all of these dimensions of competition, um, the U.S. has tremendous strengths and advantages if we work with our allies and partners. Um, and I think that if we do so, we're in a great position to, uh, really double down on the U.S. technological advantage and help ensure that, um, that for several decades to come, we're in a much stronger political, economic, and military position to shape the world to our, uh, to our interests and in those of our allies.
1: All right, Greg. You do not have to respond to that if it uh, creates uh, uh, concerns given your uh, um, uh, position at DOD. Uh, uh, I do want to ask you: uh, Is the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center uh, uh, pronounced Jake? And how many "It's Chinatown, Jake" jokes have you heard already?
5: <laughs> uh, I have not had heard that joke, um, although you know it, it strikes me as perfectly reasonable. Uh, that other countries would be very interested in what the, the Jake is up to. I would say, you know, we have spent an awful lot of time trying to educate our allies uh, as to what, you know, what steps we're trying to take in artificial intelligence, why we think it's important to the future of national security and our alliances. Um, and I think there's been a lot of excitement and desire to engage in that regard. Um, and, and overall, it's looking good. Um, what I would uh, add to, to what Paul said is that I would say that the trends um, were indeed quite bad. Um, I would say if if absent any action, uh, you should expect bad outcomes. Um, But what I would also say is that we're doing a lot right now uh, and we're growing at a pretty extraordinary pace. Um, And I think that that level of activity is going to continue to grow at an extraordinary pace. We've gotten really pretty high degree of support from both parties uh, on Capitol Hill as well as from the White House. Um, And you know, we get a lot of attention from all parts of the Department of Defense. So I think if nothing had changed, uh, there would be strong cause for concern. I think there is still cause for concern, um, but a lot more of the trends are moving in the right direction now than they were one or two years ago.
1: Oh, okay. So thanks to Greg Allen. Thanks to Paul Scharr uh, uh, for your uh, contribution to our understanding where we are on artificial intelligence, both uh, in China and the United States. I want to thank also Dave Itell, Mika Yoyang, and Nick Weaver for joining us on the News Roundup. This has been episode 274 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Step and Johnson. And it is is the last uh, episode that you will hear for the next four weeks, because we're taking our August high hiatus. I am already in France uh, trying to get in shape for hikes in the Alps with uh, at least four grandchildren uh, and their um, uh, protective moms. Uh, uh, So uh, it's going to be a a workout for sure. But we will be back in September. uh, And uh, uh, coming up, we've got uh, an interview with the uh, president of Microsoft, who has a new book out on uh, uh, the tech world. Uh, or will have. if you've got other speakers to suggest, send them our uh, send those names to CyberlawPodcast at steptoe.com and we will send you a highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Paul, Greg, you should be getting yours right now, uh, uh, and you you can make admiring noises if you like. <laughs> uh, 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 and and I will ask uh, our listeners to rate the show uh, on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify or wherever they get podcasts. We've gotten a lot of uh, good reviews and uh, a lot of new listeners in the last couple of months. So I really appreciate that. Uh, uh, Meanwhile, show credits. uh, Thanks to Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, the assistant editor. And I am, of course, Stuart Baker, your host and chief provocateur. Please join us again in September as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.